Welcome to the Passive Investing Show, a show that teaches you how to take your hard-earned cash and have it work hard for you, regardless of whether or not you continue to work hard for it. And now, here are your hosts, Jay Scott and Ashley Wilson. Welcome to the Passive Investing Show. I'm Ashley Wilson, and I'm joined here today with my co-host, Jay Scott. On today's episode, we interviewed Mauricio Raul from the Premier Law Group. And we know Mauricio very, very well because obviously he is our go-to expert for all of our personal syndications that we do in multifamily. Yeah, Mauricio is fantastic. And I'll tell you, when we first talked about having Mauricio on the show, the obvious thought was, let's have Mauricio come and talk to us about multifamily syndication, how it works, answer all our questions, because he is the the, the securities firm that we use uh, to do all of our compliance work when we do our real, large real estate deals. Um, but talking to Mauricio, what we realized is he invested in an asset class that I don't know about you, Ash, but I know essentially nothing about, but I've always been interested in. And so I asked if he would kind of, instead of talking about syndication, if he would come on to the episode and talk about oil and gas and oil and gas investments. Because again, I knew nothing about oil and gas. I know people that are investing for oil, with, with uh, investing in oil and gas, but I never really knew the, uh, the benefits, the drawbacks, um, the mechanics of how those investments work. But Mauricio does know all that stuff. And he's here today to tell us all about oil and gas investing, why we might want to invest in it, the benefits of investing in it, as well as some of the drawbacks and the risks. So, I'll let him tell the rest. And without any further ado, welcome Mauricio Raul to the show. Mauricio, welcome to the Passive Investing Show. Well, thanks for having me, Ashley. Really, uh, really excited to do it. Jay and I are so excited to have you on. Um, but first, before we dive in, could you talk a little bit about yourself and how you got into oil and gas? Well, as, as you guys know, I'm uh, first and foremost on the professional side, uh, a syndication attorney. I'm a real estate syndication attorney. I founded a firm, a Premier Law Group, and our team essentially helps real estate investors, uh, syndicators stay out of jail. So that's kind of my my day job. But, you know, obviously that's uh, obviously takes up most of my time, but that's allowed me to to look out into the investing universe and, and look at some stuff. And and I've been doing a lot of investing now for you know over a decade, obviously, and um um, I'm kind of a, let's call it a, an asset agnostic investor. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really into sort of macroeconomics and kind of big picture stuff. And so I'm always just looking for something that's interesting. And um, this oil and gas thing came along on my radar a few years ago, and I did a little bit of a deep dive and I was really attracted to it. Yeah. So for anybody that, that doesn't know, so um, you run uh, a law firm, what's the name of the firm? Premier Law Group. There you go, Premier Law Group. Um, I knew that because uh, Ashley and I are clients of yours, longtime clients of yours, and, and you guys do all of our um, uh, SEC compliance and securities work for for our syndications. Um, and so um, we, we we are familiar with you, Mauricio. Um, but for anybody that's not familiar with you, can you take us back a little bit and just kind of talk about your investing journey? So at what point, obviously, you've been an attorney for a long time, you've run the firm for a long time, but at what point did you really start thinking about your passive investments and, and basically building wealth? Yeah, it was actually right before I, I decided to first go to law school and then before I started to look into practicing law. So back when I was in college, um, I was very, very interested in real estate. Um, this was back in, uh, I don't even want to date myself, but this is, what is this? This is like, you know, 1995 to 2000, uh, uh, timeframe, really interested in real estate. 
you know, I don't know if you guys remember, if you guys are old enough to, to remember the old uh, Tommy Wu and Carlton Sheets uh, infomercials back then. But that's kind of how I got, you know, into this whole thing, got really pumped about it. And I really made a serious, you know, a serious look into maybe becoming a real estate investor instead of going to law school. I didn't really want to go to law school, to be honest with you. It was kind of like I didn't know what else to do. And so I'm like, hey, if I'm going to do this, this would be a good time to do it. Uh, and even after I went to law school, before I, you know, before I started practicing and took the bar, I said, you know, this is another chance for me to, if I'm going to do this real estate stuff, let me do it. And so real estate was where I kind of got introduced to this whole invest thing, primarily through, you know, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And you, you guys obviously, uh, I know you guys are big fans and a lot of your audience members are big fans, but that's really what got me kind of on the f- mind frame of, of investing because I knew thanks to that book and thanks to a lot of uh, circles that I was running into is that you know, busting your butt for, you know, 30, 40 years being a lawyer and, and just, you know, working your butt off and having a 401k and doing the stuff that most professionals do wasn't the kind of life that I wanted to. And the only way to kind of get out of that rat race or do something different would, would be get into the investing world. So it's been on my radar probably since about, you know, the late 1990s, early 2000s, I would say. And what asset classes are you most focused on? Uh, right now, it's oil and gas, and there's a very specific reason for that. But uh, you know, the, the three I would say: oil and gas, real estate. Uh, I don't really do any active real estate anymore, so most of my real estate is in sort of the, the passive world, in the syndication world. Uh, and then I'm also a big uh, precious metals guy, but I, I'm, I don't necessarily consider that a, an investment per se. But those are kind of my three asset classes that I, I, I pay particular attention to. I, I do want to talk about precious metals, just for real briefly, because I get asked this question all the time. I, I own some physical gold and silver and and also some, I, I do some derivatives, some trading options and gold and silver. And so everybody kind of has a different idea on why we use precious metals in, in our in our portfolio. I'm just curious, uh, what, what's your thought there? Is it an investment? Is it a hedge? Is it, uh, what, what are your thoughts on precious metals? Yeah. If, if we're talking about sort of Precious metals in the bullion form, which is what I do. So I actually purchase, you know, physical, physical precious metals, coins, bars, what have you. To me, that's not even, I don't look at it as investment uh, or even a speculation. I look at it as insurance. To me, that's kind of my insurance policy. And and I don't really care about, you know, the price, so to speak. You know, I, I buy precious metals and specifically gold. Like I have some silver, but it's specifically gold. And I just buy it continuously, whether the price is up or down, because I want to keep a percentage of my portfolio in gold so that if the you-know-what hits the fan, that that should historically sort of offset any catastrophic event that would happen somewhere else. So I look at it primarily as um, on the bullion side as insurance. Now, if you think, hey, look, gold's going to double or triple or quadruple here in the next three or four or five years, then I think you can start looking at some other options like you know miners and some stocks that, that are sort of derivatives of that. But if you're buying bullion, most people that I know buy bullion as sort of a, like you said, a hedge, an insurance, an insurance policy. Yeah, I know there's a lot of talk these days, especially with the economy potentially at a peak, maybe even over the peak. Um, a lot of people talking about buying physical gold, physical silver. I hear this at the, at the beginning of every kind of uh, economic downturn. And I think what people don't realize is it's it's not a good investment from just the from the returns standpoint, because you're going to pay a tax on the purchase. You're going to pay a tax on the sale. You're going to pay to have it shipped to you. You're going to pay to uh, to to store it. You're going to pay, um, like when you go to sell it, you need to figure out how to get it to whoever you're going to sell it to. So basically, you're getting nickel and dime on, on fees and, and transactions the whole way. But like you said, I, I think it's a, a great catastrophic risk hedge. Yeah. Um, if the power grid goes down, for example, or if there's a run on the banks, and I'm not saying either of these things are likely, um, but who knows? 
and and just having having some some physical metals. Um, or if there's just a big drop in the value of the dollar, most likely uh, gold silver is going to go up in value. So yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. And Jay, there's and there's a way to look. Li- li- I'll say liquefy. It's not the right word. You can, you can have some liquidity there because there are several well respected and largely capitalized institutions that will actually loan you on your gold, and it's usually about seventy to seventy five percent. And so there is a way for you to actually extract some of that equity in there so sort of like a refi in your home without actually having sell and incur that high tax because as you know precious metals aren't even taxed as regular capital gains they're taxed as collectibles and so the tax rate i don't even know what it is i think it's in the high 20s or low 30s but if you take a loan against it if you've got you know five hundred thousand dollars of gold and you want to pull out two hundred thousand to go buy a home or buy an investment property you can pull 200 just, just like you can pull equity from your home i think this brings up a great point because At the end of the day, investing isn't always about your direct return. So there's a lot of different reasons why people um, invest in different asset classes. And I think that is a great segue into why potentially, I mean, I don't know, I'm I'm interested to hear, but why did you choose oil and gas? Yeah. So, you know, most people, I think, correctly so, think of me as sort of a real estate person, a real estate guy, not only because of my affiliation with a real estate guy specifically, but I'm a real estate syndicator. So everybody would think, hey, I'm an investor in real estate. And I am. Um, But I have a problem, which a lot of, I think a lot of your listeners have, which is I have a tax problem, right? So I I, I have a kind of a high earning. It's not really a W-2 because I, I own the, the firm, but it, but it's a high income, which means I pay high taxes unless I do something about it. So I've got to spend a lot of money on really good tax planners. And luckily, I've got a good one. But I've got to look of ways, you know, what can I do to minimize that tax? And I think for most passive investors and most real estate investors, sorry, I want to say passive real estate investors, they look to real estate because of the tax benefits. That's one of the many you know, four or five, if you ask me what are the benefits of real estate, I can probably rattle off three, four, five of them. And one of the main ones is the tax benefit, right? The, the bonus depreciation, the 1031 exchange, I mean, all of that stuff. That there's a really, if you do it right, there's a way to basically get tax-free income if you're doing it through the vehicle of real estate, um, especially if you're a, a, a real estate professional, right? But I'm not a real estate professional. I don't have time to be a real estate professional. Um, so I don't have that option. And so even though I have some benefits on the real estate side, I don't have all of the benefits of the real estate side. Uh, but oil and gas is is probably the other one. So there's real estate to me is one of the top two vehicles to to mitigate your tax problem. The other one is oil and gas. And specifically, and I don't want to, first of all, I'm not a tax professional. So as you guys know, but specifically, it's not just any oil and gas, but it's really having a, what we call a working interest in an oil well. And there's a bazillion ways to do that. But um, the oil and gas that I specifically invest in the main reason I do it is because it allows me to offset multiples of the investment against my active income. So for example, if you were to invest $100,000 into a properly structured oil and gas um, investment, I can offset 200, sometimes 300,000 against my active income, right? So that's a big deal because not only am I Offset it against my W 2s, where any if I did the same thing with real estate, I can only offset it against my passive income. But because of the leverage, just like in real estate, you're leveraging it, I can get multiples of that deduction against my taxes. So you can get into scenarios if you can, if you can find, which are hard, sort of a 3x multiple on that, like $100,000 writes off $300,000 of income. I mean, you can see how really quickly you can pretty much eliminate all of your active income just through this investment vehicle. And and my rationale for doing this, because there is obviously an element of risk, and, and, and you could argue a high element of risk, but my, my, 
my rationale here was, hey, look, worst case scenario is I lose my entire $100,000 investment. But the alternative is I could give that $100,000, I would have to give that $100,000 to the IRS. And the IRS, is, I'm definitely losing my money in the IRS. I'm not getting any of that money back. So I'm like, hey, I'm going to lose my money either way. I've got I've to pay $100,000, $200,000 of taxes. I'm going to lose that money either way, either to the government or to this investor. And maybe I don't lose all my money. Maybe I do get a return. And this has actually been providing a pretty handsome return, which almost seems a little bit unreal. And so there is, there is a risk factor involved. But uh, like I said, worst case scenario is I lose it all, but I would have lost it all already giving it to somebody else. <laughs> Can you walk us through the mechanics of, of the tax break? So on the real estate side, it's obvious to me. Um, you have this thing called, well, there, there's a few ways, but there's one big thing called depreciation. Yeah. Um, and basically it's the, the government, the IRS says that because you have this depreciating asset, the physical improvements on the land, the buildings, um, because they physically get distressed and because they depreciate in value, they're going to allow the investor to take um, uh, this this paper loss every year um, against that depreciation. In an oil gas investment, um, presumably there's no depreciation that you're taking the loss against. So what is that tax benefit? What's the, what's, what's the IRS saying, this is the thing we're going to give you a, a deduction for, for this type of investment? Yeah, well, well the, the investment I particularly do actually does have a depreciation component to okay. it. In fact, one of the, I'll say negatives of it, but, but we are purchasing a piece of equipment and that equipment will go to zero in 10, 15 years from now. So that's not, that's not a, um, it's not, not like real estate where you get to depreciate something and it continues to go up in value. This, this particular equipment that we purchase will go to zero. Uh, now there's some discussions as to how long it will last before it goes to zero, before some of those uh, parts of those equipment start uh, deteriorating. And then there's a question of, well, can we refurbish it? Can we put in a couple of, couple more hundred thousand dollars into it? And then we can just refurbish it and we can extend the lifeline for another, for another, whatever, five, 10 years. We don't know that to be honest with you, because these, these equipments have only been, I think the longest ones that's been in there is seven years, but the manufacturer thinks it'll last 15 years, but it is actually a depreciating, a, a legitimately depreciating asset. Uh, but I just, I think like real estate, and again, I don't know the intricacies of the, of the tax code, but just like real estate, the government, look, our, our good friend, my good friend, Tom Wheelwright likes to say that the tax code is just a roadmap. It's just a series of incentives for what the government wants you to do. And the government wants you to provide a roof over people's head. That's why they encourage people and give all these tax breaks for real estate investors. So the, the government wants you to put that money into real estate so that you can provide housing for other people. Energy, as we all know today, is is something that the government has a huge incentive for people to put money into because we need energy, whether it's oil and gas or you know whatever we're extracting from the ground, we need that. And so the huge amount of tax benefits goes into oil and well um, investments uh, to incentivize people like me to invest in things like real estate and oil and gas, as opposed to you know buying Apple or or going to to, to buy a car wash or what have you. So, uh, but that's the thing; it's a depreciating, and uh, the, then the leverage. It's it's just like anything else. Like you know, we're not getting. It's a piece of equipment, so we're not getting 80% loan to value or 70% loan to value, but we, we do sometimes get 50% loan to value. Uh, and I think the most we've gotten is 60% loan to value. And so that's, we get to do that for the entire, you know, for the entire amount of the equipment uh, because it actually is depreciating over, the, over 10 to 15 years. So for a typical oil and gas investment, let's say the, the one, the example that you gave, what are you investing in? So you're investing in the equipment. Are you investing in the land? Um, do you benefit from um, like, it, it, 
is is the at the point that you invest? Do we know that there's oil underneath the uh, the the, yeah. the 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 soil, and and you're going to yeah. make money, or are you going in? Are there different like points where you can invest high risk at the beginning before yeah. we know there's oil there, and lower risk later when we know there's oil there, but we don't know if we can get it out, and then even lower risk later yeah. when you know you can get it out, but you don't know if you can sell it. Blah 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 blah. Yeah, so there's you know when you're when you're in the oil and gas business, there there's all the the, the timeline of the spectrum goes from the most speculative all, which is kind of what you talked about a little bit, where it's like I just have a piece of land, I don't even know if there's any oil oil or gas underneath, or maybe I do know, but I don't know how much. And you start exploring. That's called exploration, right? You start just digging a bunch of holes in there to see if you can strike gold, right? That's the highest risk reward because if you strike oil, great, you, your investment hits, but if you don't strike any oil, your investment goes to zero, which is what. <laughs> I think most of the experiences I've had is that. Uh, and then you have the next level, which is like, oh, now we have proven reserves. We've got, you know, we've got a, a piece of land. We know it's got oil. Now it's time to extract the oil and that has a capital cost or whatever. Uh, and then I think, I think I would categorize ours into the, the last category, which is land that has depleted oil and gas. So, so there was a, at some point there was a lot of oil. And we basically sucked out all that oil over time, or somebody has, has sucked out oil. So there's not much oil left. In fact, the oil is really trapped into rock. At this point, you have saturated rocks. Not really, you don't have a pool of oil down there. It's just all saturated rocks. And so what we do is we have a piece of equipment that essentially attaches to the oil and well gas and is able to in, what we call enhance recovery, meaning through typical recovery methods, we can't get any more oil out of the ground. We've already sucked it all out. But through this mechanism that we have, this, this technology, we can actually extract additional oil that otherwise we would not have been able to get. And, and when I say we, the oil companies would not have been able to get, and we get to share in that revenue. So every additional barrel of oil that we help pull out that the oil and gas company wouldn't have been able to pull out without us, we get a cut of that, a percentage of that uh, you know, additional margin. And that's how that's kind of how we we make the money. But but putting aside the tax thing, the easiest thing, the way I can explain what we do is it's essentially we buy a piece of equipment and we rent it out to the oil companies to use. That's really what we're doing. And instead of getting a, a monthly you know, rental income, it's just a percentage of their, you know, their profits or, or excess profits. Now, we don't structure it that way because if we structured it as a, as a rental, it would, there'd be no tax benefits. And so we, we, we've structured it through all the tax advisors in a way that we actually have a working interest in the well and we're sharing the profits of that well. But Putting all that stuff aside, you're basically buying a piece of equipment, leasing it to an oil company or somebody who has who's extracting oil, and just getting you know a profit share of that of that revenue. Interesting. And and when you say we, um, is this structured as like is this a, a business that you're investing in the business? Is this a syndication uh, type entity where you're investing in one piece of equipment in in one in one uh, entity, and and you can potentially invest in multiple of these entities. Yeah. Uh, what is, what is the, who, who's running these types of, of deals and, and are they big companies, small companies? Yeah. So th this is obviously a passive investing show. This is completely passive. So yeah. So you're, you're investing in uh, a particular piece of equipment and there's multiple of these. I think there's up to, now there's about 70 or hundred of these. So each equipment, you know, costs depending on the size of it, maybe, you know, a million to a million five. Uh, and so that typically gets syndicated. So theoretically, you can come in and you know invest a million two, a million five, and, and get the entire thing. But usually, it's in, in hundred thousand dollar chunks because there's a syndicator who's putting this together and raising the one point two or one point five. Uh, so it's a totally passive investment. And then the you know the operator who actually is 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 not not necessarily the owner of the land, but the one's actually in charge of extracting the oil. That's the company that's actually actually 
builds these this technology, this this I call it a pipeline, but it's really sort of a machine. <laughs> it's just a machine, man. I look at it as a sausage factory. I don't mean something goes in and something goes out, but it's that machine they actually build and then they manage the whole operations. So they have all the contracts with the you know big oil and gas companies. They're the ones who operate the the machinery. They're the ones who you know keep track of all the you know of, of all of the uh, revenue and the, the barrels of oil that come out of the uh, come out of the ground. And then the ones that give you the accounting. I mean, they basically do all the work and, and in exchange for that. Obviously, they get a nice cut of the of, of the revenue as well. Shifting gears a little bit with respect to the investor returns, and I know that wasn't the motivating factor of what gravitated to you to this asset class to invest in. However, with respect to the investor returns, what do they look like? Is there quote unquote cash flow along the way? Is it only realized at the end? Uh, what can what can if someone's listening right now, what can someone expect as a typical return? Yeah, it, it's a little bit tricky, but no, this is a cash flow play. So there's no you're not going to buy the equipment and then set, sell it for a capital gain. In fact, as we mentioned earlier, it is a depreciating asset and it will go down to zero. At some point, it's like you just bought a, it's, it's similar to you buying a car and using it for Uber, I guess. You know, at some point, that car is going to not work anymore and you can try and fix it up and refurbish it and keep extending the life of that car to use it for Uber. But eventually, that car is going to be worthless. Same thing. This thing's going to last maybe 15 years. Maybe we can fix it. Maybe last 10, maybe last seven. We don't know. Uh, and so it's a purely a cash flow play, but it cash flows really nicely because, um, you know, <laughs> Energy, you know, people need oil and gas, and certainly now with the, the barrel of oil being at you know whatever it is now, just hovering above or below a hundred dollars a barrel as at the time of this recording. But the returns, they, they depending on the structure, you know, we've been getting somewhere in the, you know, twenty-five to fifty percent returns on cash on cash. Now the 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 twenty-five actually remember you're putting in a hundred thousand. This is a very important point to people. Remember you're putting in a hundred thousand dollars, and then at the end of the investment, you're not getting that hundred thousand dollars back. Because it's gone, it's depreciated. So it really does depreciate. So you've got to factor that into the final return. Because unlike real estate, where you you know, you put in a hundred, you get back two hundred. So you've made a hundred thousand here. If when you get back, you know you're not getting that initial investment back. So that's an important thing to remember. And the other thing to be important, very important to remember, which is a huge uh, roadblock for many, and this is just a risk reward analysis. Like any investor has to do their own due diligence. Uh, there is a, a significant risk, right? Because uh, one of the one of the one of the requirements, and this goes into my so I, you know, you know, I sometimes talk about asset protection and stuff, and, and we talk about privacy and tax and asset protection, and we sometimes talk about, you know, that you can't always have all of them. And this is an example where you can't have all of them. So in order to get the tax benefit in this particular investment, you have to be a general partner in the limited partnership. You have to be a, and you have to be in your personal name. So you can't hide behind an entity, you can't, you know, have a trust. It's got to be your personal name as the general partner, which means you have unlimited exposure should something catastrophic happen and it's not covered by insurance. So if there's some huge, if there's some huge explosion at the oil well site, something screws up and a bazillion people die, and yes, the oil well, the oil owner is going to be sued, the operator is going to be sued, but you know, this this is a piece of machinery can also get sued, and the owners, which is in a limited partnership, would get sued. And then you as a general partner would also potentially get sued. So that's one of the one of the big risks involved in this particular investment. You said something interesting earlier. Um, you were talking about the the machine equipment depreciating. In real estate, obviously, when we utilize depreciation, there's a recapture upon sale. 
Is that the same situation with this type of investment? And how does that work if there is a recapture? There's no recapture because you're not, there's no market really. I mean, maybe there's a market, but but you're not selling this piece of equipment, right? Uh, it's um, it, it's almost like you, you guys are familiar with sort of these ATM deals as well. It's like the ATM at some point, it's just worth, you know, you bought it for $10,000 and it's worth nothing and you might be able to sell it for scrap metal. And that's, I think, what this would be sold for. Once this machine stops working or or to get it refurbished, it doesn't make economic sense anymore. Now you're just left with a bunch of metal and you would literally sell it for scrap metal. So um, there isn't going to be any recapture at that point. And, and especially the way this investment, this particular investment is structured, uh, you're actually exiting prior to that event happening. So there's there basically there's a call option. You just get taken out and you know you get you get what you get. And, and if you want to reinvest into the next machine, you can do so. So let let me ask you a question on timing. So uh, we've talked about cash flow. We've talked about the tax benefits. We've talked about um, these investments basically um, fully depreciated. You're not going to get any of your principal back. So it's probably a 10 to 15 year investment. At what point are you getting the tax benefits? At what point are you getting the, the cash flow? Do do tax benefits are they front ended? Are you going to get most of those on 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 in year one, or are they spread out over the deal? Uh, cash flow is it going to be like a year or two before um, you you start seeing any profits, or do you see that in year one, or maybe you see that in year ten? What are the what's the timing look like for both the ta- tax benefits and the cash flow? Yeah, I think of the tax benefit as the bonus depreciation. It gets taken in year one. So you get the entire 1x, 2x, 3x, whatever the tax uh, break is going to be in that year where that when the equipment put in, was put into service, that's the year, the tax year that you're going to get the tax benefit. Um, and then the investment, the cash flow starts usually about six to nine months. It depends on where the machine is. But if they're buy, if they have to build the machine, there's a you know lead up to build the thing. It might take three to four months to build it. And then they've got to put it in service and they've got to find the right well to put it into. There's a little bit of a lag. So let's just call it six to nine months before it fully starts cash flowing. Um, and then the amount of cash flow depends on how much leverage you have. I mean, some of them, you buy it all for cash with a zero leverage risk. And so that, you know, you're going to start getting sort of consistent payments. But if you have a loan on it, it also depends on the length of the loan. The ones I do that have the, sort of the, the highest leverage is just a one-year loan. So you, most of that, most of your returns in year one are going off to pay off the loan and your returns really don't kick in until year two. And then there's others that are doing a two to three or four year loan period, so that gets spread out a little bit more. So, but 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 the cash flow starts pretty much, you know, three. I would say three months after the machine gets put into um, into use, and that that can vary just on the setup side. Awesome. Let's talk a little bit about the risks. Yeah. Um, so uh, obviously <laughs> there's, there's, there's market risks. If the, the price of oil goes down, um, then, then you're going to see lower returns. Um, but, uh, can you, can you enumerate the risks outside of that or maybe including that? Yeah. I think the largest risk is we, we talked about just a little bit is the, is that you are a general partner. So, so theoretically you have unlimited exposure, which, which makes a lot of people rightly so very uncomfortable. And that's just, that's something you just have to look into your own personal investment philosophy, whether that's something you want to do. Uh, the nice thing about the the general partner thing is that, that usually you're a general partner for a limited amount of time. It's usually about a year. So, for example, if, I don't know, if it's the beginning of this year, I don't know if it would be January 1st of next year or the year after that, you would then be moved from a general partner to a limited partner. So there is that's the exposure, but that one's for a limited amount of time. And then if you want to get the leverage then you do have to personally guarantee the loan. That's how you get that that, that deduction on the multiples. Um, now, fortunately, we figured out a way with the tax uh, accountants to limit that personal guarantee just to the amount of your investment, right? So if I put in $100,000, I'm going to personally guarantee $100,000. If for whatever reason, the investment goes south or you know whatever, then and we haven't paid off the loan, then 
not only are they going to go after the cash flow or the machine, they're, they're, prote- they're going to come after you, but we're going to limit it to the amount of money you put in. But again, that's another thing that people are, especially if you're going to get a 2X or at the one we, one of them we did, I think was a 3X. So you put in 100,000, you have to personally guarantee 300,000. And there's a risk there that's at least for the first year that if it doesn't come through, you might be on the hook for that. So there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of negatives there. Um, those to me are the big, the two big ones. I'm not so concerned about the price of oil. We don't benefit too much when it goes up or it goes down because these are contracts that have been in place. You know, these these are already predetermined contracts, and these are pretty long. I think they're like ten year contracts that you you have with these big oil you know oil producers or oil operators. But uh, to me, those are the two big ones: the the unlimited exposure on the on the GP side, and then having to personally guarantee the loan, which is why some people don't want to even deal with a loan; they just want to go and just just do the regular you know the regular stuff. Awesome. So one more question before we switch into the final segment of the show, the three questions we like to ask uh-huh. all our, our, our guests. Uh, but one more question for any of our listeners that are listening to this and they're thinking, okay, this is something I'm willing to accept that risk of being a GP for a year. I'm, I'm willing to accept the fact that I'm not getting uh, any principal back. It's a pure tax benefit and cash flow play. They're really interested in doing this. How do they find these types of investments? Is there some some easily discoverable market for them? Are there one or two <laughs> no, big operators? Yeah, there's actually the the op, there's really it's very it's it's not something that's advertised out there. So I I be, you know became aware of this because obviously I'm I'm a securities attorney and I represent you know the client that actually has these investments. So that's how I became aware of and um, so. It's difficult to uncover them, but I'm happy to. I mean, I obviously don't do it myself, but I'm happy to to connect people. If somebody's interested, you know, they can just reach out to me, and I'm happy to make an introduction. Uh, maybe they can just. Um, I didn't think this through too much, guys, but uh, maybe they just go to the website, you know, premierlog.net. Just you can connect through me there, and just maybe put on the on the title, you know, oil and gas, and that way I know you're interested in me making a connection, or, or I do have some collateral too. I can probably send some collateral uh, to whoever's interested, and then if they want a, an introduction, I'm happy to make an introduction. Perfect. I'll make sure that the uh, that that link is in the show notes for anybody that wants to reach out to you. Yeah, happy to do it. So as Jay mentioned, we're going to transition now to the three questions we ask all of our guests. Um, so are you ready? No, I hate these. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we have to do it. We have to do it. It's not hard, I all promise. Right, right, so right. the first question is, obviously, you've just mentioned that the three uh, asset classes that you're invested in currently are real estate, precious metals, and obviously oil and gas, what we've talked about for the last few minutes here. But have you looked into or are interested in any other asset classes? What recently has sparked your interest in maybe some other asset class? Or have you learned something about one of those three asset classes that you didn't know about um, that has just changed your thinking? Bitcoin. Bitcoin is something that's been on my radar for a while. Um, I wasn't a big fan of it. The last huge, and when I say the last backing, you know, 2016, 2017, obviously it's a new thing. But uh, I was always super, I didn't like the asset class because I was convinced, and I, I still, I could be right or wrong. So I was convinced that th- there's no way that the US government was going to allow this to, to become anything. They don't want a competitor against their dollar. So that, I was just like, the odds of this thing getting shut down by government is off the charts. And because of that, I didn't want to invest. Or I shouldn't say invest. I didn't want to speculate because uh, there is a difference between investing and speculation. Uh, but um, you know, recently over the last year or so, I'm getting more and more convinced that although this is clearly going to be a lot more regulation involved, I'm not as convinced anymore that this is going to get shut down 
by the U.S. government uh, or whether they can shut it down, especially. And so, you know, the adoption rate's been going on. So that's something I've been super interested, not only from an investment standpoint, but just to give you guys a little preview here, that, but also just from the, the blockchain technology and how that I definitely believe that blockchain technology is going to revolutionize our industry, the syndication industry. I think five years from now, 10 years from now, the tokenization of syndications is, well, it's already there. I mean, I get probably two or three calls every month about people asking me about how do, how do I tokenize my real estate? How do I tokenize a syndication? Uh, and I'm not quite equipped to handle those yet. But by the end of the year, that's going to be part of our practice because I just foresee this in five years, probably half of the syndications I think will will end up being tokenized and be you know, being able to you know trade freely you know a year after purchase you're going to be able to put these on exchanges and you're going to be able to start trading your syndication interest. So, but long story short, coming back, I'm really fascinated with Bitcoin and I've been paying a lot of attention to Bitcoin lately. I'm, I'm paying a lot of attention to the the current drop in the price and I think at some point very soon, I do believe it's going to continue to go down and that, that's when I'm going to start dabbling in that, I think, a little bit. And that'll be my fourth asset class. Yeah, we could we could probably talk about crypto and, <laughs> and, and, and Bitcoin and blockchain for another two hours. I will say for any of our listeners that were intrigued by your your comments about uh, tokenization and, and using the blockchain uh, to facilitate uh, real estate transactions, I recommend going back and listening to one of our earlier episodes with uh, Alex S. Uh, excuse me, Alexander Kanan. He's uh, an attorney, and uh, we talked all about tokenization. We we had a, an amazing conversation. Uh, so definitely, everybody, go back and check that out. Uh, let's jump into question number two. And so this is this is all around legislation. You being an attorney, you probably have some thoughts here. But what's the current legislation or economic situation that you think poses the greatest threat to your passive investing strategy? To my personal passive investing strategy. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, for me, it'll, it's got to be the a change in the tax code. That would be my biggest, if there's legislation that comes out, you know, for example, on the real estate side, they keep coming out with proposed legislation that try to stick in legislation to eliminate the 1031 exchange tax benefit, for example. And, and time and time again, it gets, it gets put into a bill and it gets rejected. For me, it'd be something similar. There's, there's such an anti-oil and gas sentiment out there that the administration just wants to get rid of that, that, that a working interest benefit. And if that went away, that's, I wouldn't say it's 100% of the reason I'm in there, but it's a, it's probably at least 50% of the reason I'm in there. So if that went away, I would then move away from that asset class. And I think then I would be going back to, which I'm already going to go back, but then I'd, I'd shift over to real estate because that has that, you know, in addition to the 1031, the depreciation, that's really the main thing I'm looking for is the depreciation. I don't think that's going to go away because people always need to place a roof over their heads. There's always anti-sentiment about oil and gas and greedy oil companies and all that stuff, even though that narrative isn't necessarily correct. Let, let me ask you another question in, in, in that vein. Since we have you on the show and you are you are one of the premier syndication um, uh, securities attorneys uh, in the country, so I'm, I'm really curious your thoughts on um, the, the 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 rumblings of potentially the accredited investor definition being changed by the SEC. Basically, the SEC uh, deciding that uh, to be an accredited investor, you have to have a higher net worth or higher income. Um, there's been lots of talk about that for for years. Um, where are your thoughts if, if you're if you're willing to go there on on the likelihood of that happening? I will. I'm, I've actually been on the record, and, and I'm going to do a quick. Uh, you know, if you don't get some, I'm going to do a little plug because I, I do a, I do a live every Wednesday, and tonight's live is actually going to be on that exact topic. <laughs> so it's the real estate syndicator live uh, uh, show. But I've been very vocal about um, 
I do believe that the accredited investor uh, limits will be increased. So right now it's a million dollars of net worth, excluding your primary residence. Um, that million dollars, that legislation was out in 1982. Um, and that, you know, adjusted for inflation, you're close to 3 million. I think it's 2.8, 2.9 million in 1982 dollars. So it makes sense for the, for the, for the limit to, to be increased. Uh, and it also makes sense because in conjunction with that increase in limit, they're also actually expanding. Not only are they, they've already expanded the definition of a credit investor and they're going to continue to expand the definition. So there's going to be in the near future certification program that you can take, a course you can take, pass an exam and become an accredited investor that way, irregardless of your income or net worth. And so when that happens, a lot more people are going to be able to become a credit investor. And so it kind of makes sense to me in my perverse mind that they would increase limits so that people now who, yes, if you're over a million, but less than three, you were an accredited investor and now you're not, but you can now go get an, to go, go take an exam and become an accredited investor through that, that secondary vehicle. So it's almost like, do you want to be an accredited investor for free or do you want to be an accredited investor by taking the exam? And it's just the free option that's going to go up. And, and I do believe that it's going to go up. If I was a betting man, which I'm not, um, I would say it's going to be somewhere around that two and a half to $3 million. There's some rooms about 10 million or whatever. And I don't think that's, that's going to happen, but, but two and a half to 3 million, I could definitely see that. And it makes sense in conjunction with this expansion of the definition that's going on at the same time. Is there a, a timeline that the, the SEC typically follows? Like, do they make announcements on a regular basis or could this just get rolled out tomorrow? Well, there are there are timelines, but the governments never follow the timeline. So the timeline was supposed to be April. So in April of 2022, they were supposed to come out with the proposed rule. And so once the proposed rule comes out, there's usually a comment period, you know, 30, 60 days where people can, you know, people like you and I and the three of us can, can send letters to the SEC and say, this is a great idea. This is a terrible idea. It should be higher, it should be lower, whatever. And they take those, those comments into consideration. And then usually about three quarters Later, they come out with a final rule and they either have taken into account those comments and changed it, or sometimes it's the same, but the final rule usually comes about about nine months or three quarters after that. But as of now, we're sort of in the time of this recording, we're kind of in the middle of May. Uh, we have not seen that proposed rule. So uh, we're, I'm kind of, I wouldn't say I'm checking daily, but I've got my eye open. And as soon as that comes out, uh, we'll, we'll be doing some kind of an event to, to talk about it. All interesting stuff. So we're going to transition now back to the three questions. <laughs> oh, Ashley's, so <laughs> Ashley's so mad at me for, for derailing the conversation. No, I actually <laughs> found, it I found it extremely interesting. And I, I think we could go on for at least another hour on this topic alone. But um, just to revert back to the three questions, the final question is, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? And if that is... Uh, stumping you, you can also um, say what is the best piece of advice uh, that you have ever given or know of. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the best piece of advice you have received personally. Just give us some advice. <laughs> Tell us what to do. <laughs> I, I've got a quote in mind and, I, and I'm, and I'm going to butcher it. So I want to get it right, but it's, it's on topic here. But I'm a big, um, you know, one of my mentors is Jim Rohn. Um, and he has a great quote as uh, something to the effect of, oh, I'm going to totally butcher this, but it's something along the lines that, you know, your, your, your wages will make you a living, but your investments will make you a fortune or something like that, which, which goes to the theme of this, this podcast and what we do is that, 
you know, it's very difficult to become wealthy or financially independent by just going to work every day, getting paid a paycheck and sort of saving that paycheck or doing whatever. Um, but, but taking that excess paycheck and putting it into investments, whether they're passive or active, that's what's really going to grow wealth for you and your family and, and, and bring you to what really I think most people should be focused on, which is financial independence, not necessarily wealth or rich that has different, different definitions. But if you can get to financial independence sooner rather than later, that and Jim Rowe would also say, you know, that's that should be everybody's goal is to become financially independent as quickly as possible. But that's going to be done through these passive investments or active investments. It's not going to be from your W two. So if you're not yet started passively investing, then you know take that excess income that you have from your day job and start putting it towards something because that's what's going to make you you know a fortune as opposed to a living. Wages well, well, make you a living. Profits make you a fortune. There you go. Love it. That's what it is. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> Very well said by both of you. Um, I, I, had, I had the I had the ability to look it up while you were talking. So hey, I, I had the advantage. Wages there. wages will make you a living. Profits will make you a fortune. That's a Jim Rohn quote. And if you've not, yep. here's another Love big it. piece of advice. If you're not following Jim Rohn, who unfortunately passed away about I don't know ten years ago now, you should definitely have him on his radar. Tony Robbins is one of his disciples. So uh, he's uh, he's the he's the Tony Robbins mentor. Jim Rohn, R O H N. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you again, Mauricio, for joining us today. If you want to hear more about Mauricio and connect with him, check out premierlawgroup.net. If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to listen to more, you can tune in to your favorite podcast provider. You can also check us out on YouTube at The Passive Investing Show. Make sure to like and subscribe. We hope this episode provided information, education, and some motivation to help you continue your journey of having your money work hard for you. Thank you again for joining The Passive Investing Show.